Welcome to The Out Agenda, coming to you on archive.kpfk.org. I'm Rita Gonzalez. And I'm Ralph Radabaugh. Um, on the show this week, Rita, we're going to have the Director of Community Services for the Desert AIDS Project, and it's CJ Toby. And I believe that you have a little experience with the Desert AIDS Project, don't you? I went there last June to get a COVID test because someone, a really good friend of mine, found out that he was positive. And so uh, since we were near each other, I had to go down there and it was such a great experience. Everyone there treated me so well. It was, uh, I was very impressed with the place. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that we have someone on that we can talk about some of their services because yeah, I really wanted to know what else was in that building. Oh, it's, it's a really nice building. I've been by it before. Um, so it was a pretty easy process though. They kind of ushered you in and took care of everything really quickly and you got your test pretty easily. Yeah, everything went really well. Uh, I made a phone call, went down there, and uh, uh, there was no waiting. I had an appointment. They took me exactly the time I was supposed to be there, did my test, left. A couple of days later, they called me, and everything was fine. Great, Rita. That's a relief. We don't. We want to protect you. We don't want anything to happen to you. Well, that was a while ago, but uh, I, I felt very safe, and I just felt very comfortable being there, and everyone was so great. So, uh, But I, it's it's an amazing little building, so obviously I didn't get to see everything else was in there because, you know, things were closed up because of COVID, but uh, I'm, I'm sure our guests will tell us some of the services that they have yeah. there. What do you say we invite CJ in right now? I think we should. CJ, welcome to the show. CJ, so let's start out just with a little background on Desert AIDS Project or um, DAP now. Um, you've rebranded from um, our understanding. Um, give us a little history and then why you guys decided to rebrand. Well, our, our history is, is really um, just a table point of activism. Um, we were founded, uh, Desert AIDS Project, over 36 years ago um, by an amazing group of volunteers um, in response to the AIDS crisis. And, and through that time, you know, an evolution happened where we go to 2014, we became a federally qualified health center. So we really um, expanded our doors and our mission to help serve the broader community. And January, just a few months ago, through a long vetting process through the community and our donors and our patient population, it was time to, you know, change the name from Desert Age Project to, to DAP Health. Over 50% of our patients now, you know, they're, they're HIV negative. They're not living with, with HIV. And so we learned through the AIDS crisis um, that our model of wraparound services to our patients in our community would best serve anybody that comes into our doors, regardless of HIV status. So the rebrand of the name to DAP Health, uh, it, it makes sense. It, re it resembles, you know, our mission and our love for our community work. And DAP Health is still absolutely committed to ending the HIV epidemic in this region. Uh, the name change uh, or the evolution of the name, um, it does not change our commitment whatsoever to our aging HIV population and also to prevent new cases. I want to back to on, go a little bit about the history because I just find this so uh interesting uh, it's like amazing like in 1984 that's when the AIDS crisis was just starting nobody really knew what this was and then here out in in uh I guess it would be Riverside Coachella Valley or the Palm Springs area they were being so progressive that they knew that people knew that something had to be done even though everywhere else people still didn't even know what to call this I mean how, how do you explain that 
you, and it's crazy. You can't explain it. And, and you know, I'll share this with you. I, I wasn't born until 1986. So I didn't even live through, you know, 1984 of what you're talking about. But I can tell you when I joined DAP Health nearly six years ago, the first thing I did was start talking to people who lived through that time period that are still living here today, that were responsible for that change in serving our community, when people didn't know what this virus was. The only thing they knew is that people were contracting something that was killing the people they love. And so they responded through compassion and understanding and just knowing that we are all humans and in this together. Um, and, and it's really, really neat to be able to have those conversations with people that live through it because now, we, we were just faced with another pandemic, a virus that some of us were like, well, what is this? What's going on? Why is this affecting the older people, but not the younger people more? And a lot of our patients um, that are living with HIV are going through another pandemic, and they've been suffering through PTSD, and they, they've been isolated at home. Um, their mental health has, has struggled through this as well, because they, they've gone through this, and it's been scary for them. And, you know, so what, what do we do as an organization? What do we do as people? Well, we say we are here for you. What what can we do during this time where, where people have to stay home and people don't know what's going on? And so that's why we, we responded very quickly um, by opening a COVID-19 triage clinic to help the hospitals here to keep people out of the hospitals and just say, hey, come into our COVID-19 triage clinic, get tested. We'll let you know if you need to go to the emergency room. Majority of people just got sent home and said, hey, go home and rest let's watch your oxygen level and you don't need to go to the, to the hospital. And, you know, in, in light of that too, we knew that people were going to be homebound and that people were one would be fear of COVID because this is their second pandemic or they're older and they're told to stay home, or maybe they're also COVID-19 positive and they're quarantined for two weeks. So that's when I said, well, how are we going to get food to these people, right? How are we going to get essential items so people don't have to leave and they can have toilet paper and soap and they can clean their kitchen and, they have their milk and bread. And so that's why we launched um, home delivery programs to any of our patients living with HIV and any of our patients that were coming through the COVID-19 triage clinic, because we just wanted to provide options that people could take advantage of to stay home so they don't have to fear for being at risk of contracting COVID. I, I know from firsthand experience uh, that when I first moved out to Palm Springs, uh, someone, two of my friends that were helping me move ended up one of them was ill that night when they're going back to LA, they had to go to the emergency room and then they found out they were positive with COVID. So they had to call me and tell me this. Then it's like, you know, then I'm in a panic thinking, Oh, what do I do now? Where do I go to get a test? And I did call a DAP to get it for a test. Cause I didn't know what else to do. And a doctor called me back immediately and we discussed it. And they said, don't panic. That's wait a couple of days we'll set you up with an appointment. We'll wait a few days because you don't get it like this, the same day someone tells you. Usually it takes a few days for it to happen. And I went down, it was so efficient. You just, you had an appointment, you you came in, they, they did the test, you went home and they called you in a couple of days to let you know how it was, how are you doing? You know, my mental state, everything was fine. I didn't have it. And I thought it was such a beautiful feeling that I felt so cared about. I wasn't just a number to them. I was a person. And I've just been so impressed with that ever since. I thought, wow, this is a great organization. I've heard good things about it, but actually to experience it was like, wow, it, it is a great organization. 
We, we definitely strive to be as compassionate as we absolutely can. And your, your example that you just mentioned, I'm going to share you know, a story yesterday, for example. Um, we had an inquiry through the website um, from a young person saying that they tested positive for HIV over the weekend in another city and that they were scared and had no idea what to do. They didn't know where to seek help. So immediately I was able to get a hold of some people and within 15 minutes that that person that inquired through our website was contacted and placed on our clinical schedule um, for four o'clock that afternoon. So we were able to take that that worry by that person with a new HIV diagnosis and get them on the clinic schedule the same day. And it's, it's that approach to saying everything is a priority here regardless of your request or who you are, whether wherever you're from, it does not matter. Um, when you contact us, we're going to do everything we can to compassionately care for your needs. CJ, I'm really curious about just the mere face of AIDS and how it's changed over the years. We think, you know, we started out talking about when you first started in 1984, when you exclusively, I'm sure, um, treated HIV and AIDS patients. Um, now you branched out to a much bigger um, facility that offers um, more services mostly, or I would imagine in large part, because the face of AIDS has changed so much. How can you explain just a little bit about, you know, how, because I think that people have a misconception, um, people outside of the LGBTQ community, maybe that, you know, AIDS really isn't a big deal anymore, that, you know, there's drugs now that people are living, um, you know, a complete full um, life expectancy on. So is there still a concern about HIV infection and AIDS? So I, I can say that we have been making tremendous progress before the COVID pandemic um, of seeing a, a decrease in new HIV infections, at least in white people. However, we, we've seen an increase across the country um, of new HIV cases in the African-American community and the Latinx community. So obviously those two communities are disproportionately impacted right, by, by HIV. Today, yes, the, the importance is, is getting tested and knowing your status. So if you are HIV positive, you can start medication right away. The sooner you know that you are HIV positive and start on medication right away, two great things come from that. One, it's going to improve your quality of life, right? Your life expectancy is going to be the same, just like an HIV negative person. But also, secondly, is we know that if you take your medication as prescribed and you become undetectable, which means that the amount of HIV virus in your blood is so low you cannot transmit that to a negative partner. So undetectable equals and untransmittable, which means you're not going to pass HIV on to anyone else. And so those are the two biggest keys now in the year 2021 of it improves your, your quality of life, but you also can't transmit HIV to your HIV negative partner. Now with HIV and then with the COVID, you've got these two things hitting you. It's like a big whammo. Uh, how has that changed? Oh, it's, it's been absolutely um, frustrating, um, to be honest with you, because, you know, we're, we're already battling, you know, the HIV pandemic for, you know, 35 plus years. Um, we've seen an increase in STI, sexually transmitted infections as well. And then you get a COVID pandemic thrown at you. And, and so a lot of the resources, you know, in a lot of organizations and in and, and the county and state health departments went to tackle COVID. And... You know, so what gets put on the side burner really is sexual wellness, HIV prevention, HIV care. And so it, it, it's, been, it's been a very challenging last 12 months. But I, I can tell you there has been so much wonderful work and so much innovation that has come out of this COVID pandemic that I really think that five or 10 years down the road, when we look at HIV, we're probably going to look back on this COVID pandemic 
in the long run and say, wow, it really pushed us to do things that we never even thought were possible before. Like keeping virtual health, for example, or doing, um, we launched a mobile health clinic to do SPI testing and treatments or just HIV lab work. We're now providing HIV tests to people across the country who want to go to our website and just request a free at-home self-test. So there's so many different things that we've been able to do that probably nobody would have ever thought of if this COVID pandemic didn't happen. And I do suspect to see an increase in new HIV cases and SPI um, cases as well that we've seen steadily through this pandemic. But I think in the long run, these new things that we've learned through this pandemic, as long as we hang on to those new innovative strategies that we've used, um, that really pushed us to, to serve people and meet people where they're at and provide different options to access testing, it's really going to help us combat this HIV um, epidemic. So you you can now mail these these kits, home testing to anyone, anywhere. Uh, if, all they have to do is just request it from you for HIV testing. Yes, we, we started piloting over the summer, pilot testing it over the summer um, with recovery centers. And then in September, we began... Um, digital ads through social media, little click apps um, and ads, and then also on bus shelters, see them driving down the 10. So if you're coming from LA to Palm Springs for a fun weekend, you'll see a self-testing ad. And you can go to gaphealth.org as well and request one. And so we've had people from Michigan and New York, Indiana request them while they're visiting. And then we, we call them up. We um, confirm that their address that they gave us is correct. And we send them a self-HIV test. Now, if they're in another state, how do you work with, do you encourage them to go to their local uh, center? I mean, how, how, do, how would that work? Yeah, the self-HIV test, it, it comes with a bundle of information. So it's, it's, not, it's not as simple as people probably think. I think some people think, oh, you send out the HIV test and you don't ever talk to the person. Well, you described before, Rita, you know, that's not really how DEP Health does it. We're going to call you back multiple times and we're going to help you and ask you those questions to support you. So two big key things with the at-home test is that result, right? So if it's HIV positive, then what we do is we have a linkage to care team that's going to connect that person in, say, New York to whatever medical clinic um, that they're going to be seeing there for HIV care. If they're HIV negative, for example, well, then we're going to have a conversation about, well, why did you request the, the HIV test? What does your sexual history look like? What is your condom use? Have you heard of PrEP? Would you like to take PrEP? It's the one pill once a day to remain HIV negative. So then we connect them to whatever PrEP writer is in their area. CJ, is the center open right now during COVID? Um, are you guys open as a facility for walk-in patients or is it all virtual right now? Yeah, so we, we, we never closed operations. Our dental clinic was closed for a little bit until we were able to get an HVAC system um, to safely see patients. But we, we do walk-ins for established health center patients. So if you're a primary care patient or HIV patient and you have a sore throat and you don't have an appointment, you can walk in and you can get triaged. For our sexual wellness clinic, that's open to the entire community. We do recommend appointments, but we do take walk-ins as well. And if there's no shows during an appointment, then the next person that walked in will be seen. Um, could you talk us um, through a little bit of the process of coming into the center the first time and how you, um, you know, what that involves coming in the first time? And also, um, what if someone was an undocumented um, individual? How would you respond to that? So when you walk into the organization, let's say somebody's walking in, you know, it doesn't matter what day of the week, right? So somebody walks into the organization and they're, and they're wanting care here. They're going to be met with our um, 
smiling volunteers first. Um, we have volunteers, over hundreds of them, um, and they always greet everybody with a smile at the door. And then that patient is going to be shown to the central registration team who's just going to say, oh, hey, welcome to DAD Health. How can we help you? Well, I want to see a primary care doctor or I want to see behavioral health or, you know, I'm having um, symptoms and I want to get tested for SPIs, right? It could be who knows what the needs are. Um, we register them. We put them into our um, EHR system, our electronic health record system. And we then, based on that, we, we then look at, okay, well, what service do you need? Do we need to connect you to a case manager? Do we need to connect you to a prep navigator? We really just connect them to whatever support staff is going to be needed to really help guide them through their journey here. Whether it is just the one time they're here during the on a Monday before someone would go back to LA, for example, or maybe someone's wanting to establish a medical home and, and stay here for the next 10 years. And as far as insurance, it, it doesn't matter if someone has insurance or not. It doesn't matter if they are a citizen of the United States or not. We at DEP Health are a federally qualified health center, so we have um, numerous payer sources, and we never let um, insurance or income or anything be a barrier to make sure, you know, to prevent us from providing care to anybody that walks in our doors. Um, if I were undocumented, you said there's, you don't have any um, restrictions on treating anybody, but if I came in and I thought, what if I were fearful about my information being, um, you know, obtained by somebody else, or, you know, I, I didn't want to give my name. I mean, how do you process through something like that? So we have staff that's gone through training, um, motivational interviewing, and just being able to have those conversations with people that are scared. There, there's there's stigma attached to pretty much anything that, that happens. I actually have staff in my department who have disclosed stories to me that, that they um, came here across the border and weren't citizens, and they were, they were young kids. So the, the first thing we do is we connect those people who have those lived experiences to then talk to those patients who have a fear for disclosing any information to know that, hey, you know what, there's somebody across from me who is working here, who went through the same feelings and the, you know, the same stigma that I went through. Well, you build that trust and that relationship and, and we help guide them through what they're comfortable with to access services. So can we talk a little bit about the Steve Chase Humanitarian Awards? I absolutely can. The Steve Chase uh, Awards are actually virtual this year. But we're not holding back on any Broadway talent like Soshana Bean from Wicked and Shirley Rao from Dream Girls. Plus, we're going to be honoring Keisha D, our hometown vocal diva, who we love very much. And then Scott Nevins is going to be the host, and he's also on our board of directors. And then anybody can donate anytime you want to, but you don't have to. And you can check out the events tab at dphealth.org. It's on May 5th, and you can even watch the event afterwards. Um, what, what are the humanitarian awards for? I mean, what, what do you honor people for? Yeah, well, it, it changes every single year on, on who we honor. Um, but it's really uh, people who just do humanitarian work, who serve our community, either locally, nationally, or globally. Um, we had Dr. Deborah Burks, who received an award recently, and I know everybody knows her for her work through COVID. So it's really people who are just authentic, compassionate people that are just doing the work for the good of humanity. How do you find out about this or just go on your website? Yeah, you can just go to DAP.org uh, and there'll be a tab on there for Steve Chase Humanitarian Awards. And you can click that to register. You can donate, you can attend, and you can also watch it after it will be recorded. I was going to say, and I know you said that um, you have hundreds of, uh, or at least over a hundred volunteers there, but you're always looking for more volunteers, aren't you? 
Oh, we always, we always want volunteers. Volunteers, to be honest with you, there's no way we could do anything that we do without volunteers. We actually just had a intern um, just graduate through the community health department here today. She was absolutely amazing. And we have a large volunteer base here at the organization and also just in the community health department. Um, we have a condom club that meets once a month that's been going on for, I believe it's been 20 years now. It's our, our longest standing volunteer program here at DEP Health. And we um, have volunteers that go out into the community and help us with any kind of testing, outreach to homeless encampments, um, education at recovery centers. Uh, we, we do so much with volunteers. We have our volunteers at the front desk to welcome everybody with a smile, like I mentioned. Um, we have volunteers at events. We have volunteers at Revivals, which, which is our resale store. Volunteers is, is really just what makes the magic happen here at DEP Health and serving our community. And I love revivals. I want you to know, I hit all three of them <laughs> at least once every two weeks. <laughs> Half my house is furnished with revival. You'll, you'll be happy to know that we're, we're actually opening up our fourth revival in May in Indio. Oh, okay. It's a good place for me to go. One more place. <laughs> Check it out. And, and, the, and the staff at revival or the volunteers there are so exceptional. They're just wonderful people. They do a great job. Um, CJ, can you give us one more time the um, contact information? Yes, it's daphealth.org. Great. Okay. CJ, before we go, can you tell us the services that DAP does offer? I absolutely can. Uh, so we offer primary care. We offer infectious disease. So HIV, hepatitis C. We offer gender-affirming care. We have an on-site sexual wellness clinic for STI testing and treatment, including PrEP and PEP. We have a behavior health program. We have a substance use program. We have a social services department filled with a case management team of 10. We have a community health department that does all the outreach um, and testing, including the launch of a new mobile clinic with an integrated RN. We have a wellness program with so many different social support groups, um, including acupuncture, a peer support specialist, and chiropractor. We have an on-site Walgreens, and we have an on-site LabCorp as well. And last but not least, we also have a dental clinic. Wow, it's wow. just a one-stop shop. You have all that. Is, is this all in the same area or there's various locations? Yeah, we're at 1695 North Sunrise Way. It, 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 that is our main campus. Uh, we also have a housing um, behind us uh, that's housing roughly 80 of our clients right now. So we, we do offer the full holistic wraparound service approach here. And we, we learned about this, this model through the AIDS crisis that, that people need to seek health care. They need medical care. But there are so many different things that are happening in someone's life that's preventing them from getting the care that they need. So if it's housing, if it's mental health, if it's dental, if it's education, if it's, if it's chiropractor, if it's case management, whatever that person needs, when they come through the store, we make sure that we can connect them to those services and it improves their health outcomes and they can enjoy their journey of life. I'm so glad we were able to talk to you about some of the services and we have to have you back on to talk about because there's a lot more going to be happening soon. And I know there's more to talk about. I'm just going to have to have you back on the show. 
I will be back anytime you want me. If we want to just do this every every day, we can we can make it that happen if you want to. I might just come down and visit. You've got everything. I'll go to revivals, and then I'll go to the dentist, and I'll go to Walgreens, and then I'll stop by your office and just stay there and chat with you. CJ, well, I just, actually, oh. you're, you're going to be taking me out of the office. I'm going to go to all those places with you so you can oh. get me out of the office. <laughs> okay, because I'm really good shopping. <laughs> um, CJ, I just wanted to say that um, your enthusiasm and your knowledge is infectious. And it's really, really, really apparent. And you really are passionate about what you talk about. <laughs> um, but to share with you too, because I do like to share this. I was actually diagnosed with AIDS in 2010. Um, I was severely sick and I, I had no idea what HIV or AIDS was at that time. I grew up in rural Ohio and it was just an absolute horrible time. And my, my status actually got publicized and it shouldn't have to people in the community. So I went through a solid three years of being suicidal and depressed and received really nasty um, community pushback and, and just, it, it was horrible. Long story wow. short, I ended up flying to Palm Springs with nothing but 20 bucks in my dog and was homeless for quite a while and just did everything I could to survive and ended up meeting a, a man who got a job in Colorado. So I moved with him because I was just doing what I could to survive. I walked into their ASO, their aid service organization, and my case manager said, you should, you should work here. He goes, <laughs> your folders are all color coded. You really well. He's like, you just apply for the case management job. So I applied for it and they picked me over somebody with a master's in social work degree. Mm-hmm. And it did not take them but two or three weeks to say, here's all the prevention programming and oh, we're, we want to do a friend service program, just make it happen. And, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I loved what I was doing and everything I was doing was giving back to people who were probably just like me. So it is what it is. And, and here I am today. You know what? You're even more of an inspiration than I'd originally thought then, because that was an incredibly impressive story. And then you ended up back in Palm Springs. It's like things happen. Yeah, there, there was there's something about Palm Springs. I, I've always felt there was a missing piece in my life. I think I realized when I was probably 12 and I thought, well, maybe it's because you're gay or maybe, you know, and, and it was I have never felt complete until I came here and was on top of the mountain and, and just the community here and, you know, just the sense of just, it feels like home. And so I knew um, I wanted to come back here after being in Colorado for a couple of years. And so I applied for a case management position um, back in 2015 and bounced around to the clinic, to case management, to managing in the department, to become a, becoming a director and on the leadership team. Well, you're great. You're yeah. absolutely great. And we're going to have you back on our show. Absolutely. God, I'd have you on just to talk about your life experience. That's very, you know, incredibly impressive and very inspirational. Wow. Yes. CJ, thank you so much for um, taking the time to spend with us today. Really appreciate that and look forward to talking to you again really soon. Now, once again, our guest has been CJ Toby, Director of Community Services from DAP Desert AIDS Project. Now we want to hear from you. So tell us what you think of the Out Agenda and about the kinds of interviews and stories you want to hear. Follow us on Twitter or email us at theoutagenda at gmail.com. I'm Rita Gonzalez. And I'm Ralph Radbaugh. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful week. And remember that being out is the first step to being equal. Now stay tuned for This Way Out.
I said, John, what are you seeing in the young Marines that are out there? And he said, sir, quite honestly, they're focused on the enemy, and he doesn't think it's an issue. The heroine of Earth Day, Rachel Carson, coming up on the Rainbow Minute. On the Rainbow Minute. On the Rainbow Minute. God loves me for who I am, and God does not make mistakes. I'm terrified because I'm the parent of a transgender child, and I'm afraid that by speaking here today, my sweet son, whom I love more than life itself, will be taken from me. Out, the international LGBT radio magazine, I'm Lucia Chappell. Ugandan trans man killed in Kenyan refugee camp, how Rachel Carson moved the earth, and Texans testify against terrifying trans bans. Those stories and more this week because you've discovered This Way Out. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Paula Thomas. With NewsRap. A summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending April 17, 2021. A young Ugandan trans man in Kenya's Kakuma refugee camp died this week from injuries he sustained in the latest attack on perceived sexual gender minorities. Critton Trinidad Jerry Atuera was among the victims when anti-queer thugs firebombed their sleeping quarters on March 15th. Many LGBTQ people have lived for years in the camp's Block 13 because of recurring anti-queer attacks by other refugees. Most fled neighboring Uganda when legislators proposed the death penalty for consensual adult gay sex. Fellow queer refugees called Atuera a proud trans man, an accomplished poet, and an admired leader. Hospital officials said he had underlying health conditions that may have made it difficult for him to survive his second-degree burns. The camp is co-managed by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the Kenyan government, and its Department of Refugee Affairs. According to a press release from the UN agency, Jordan Iyeshiji also sustained second-degree burns in the attack. He is recovering and is expected to be discharged soon. A High Commission official told Reuters this week that additional security will be sent to protect the camp's queer refugees. Even though Kenya punishes gay sex with up to 14 years in prison, the UN press release noted that the East African nation remains the only country in the region to provide asylum to those fleeing persecution based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression. Emmanuel Kiyimba is a gay Ugandan living in the camp. He told Pink News that refugees perceived to be queer are threatened or pelted with rocks or other objects on an almost daily basis. He described how many shop owners in the camp refuse to sell food or other necessities to them because they think that we will leave a curse. Kiyimba said, We never thought all would end like this. We came to Kenya seeking protection, but we are perishing. The Australian advocacy group Humanity in Need has set up a GoFundMe page to funnel financial support to Block 13 residents. The UK government LGBT advisory panel is no more. It was set up during the tenure of previous Prime Minister Theresa May to advise the government and ministers on issues and policies concerning lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. 
Current PM Boris Johnson's administration has long been under fire for dragging its feet on a promised ban on conversion therapy, the medically discredited claim that queer people can be cured. Three members of the 12-member panel resigned last week over what they called the failure of Johnson's conservative government to take proactive actions in support of LGBTQ people. Queer evangelical panel member Jane Ozan blamed her departure on a hostile environment for LGBT plus people among this administration. In their resignation statements, members James Morton and Ellen Murray each cited the government's failure to advance the lives of transgender people in particular. Nancy Kelly is CEO of Britain's leading advocacy group, Stonewall. Kelly remained on the panel because, in her words, many of the key commitments from the LGBT Action Plan initiated during the May administration remain incomplete. A government spokesperson told the BBC that a decision had already been made to disband the panel when the terms of the current members expired on March 31st. Without any specifics, they claimed that a replacement panel of some sort will be set out in due course. Attacks on the lives of transgender young, their medical caretakers, and even their parents continue unabated in a number of U.S. state legislatures. Some measures either ban LGBTQ-inclusive classroom instruction or require parental consent in advance. Republican governors in Arizona and North Dakota are expected to sign those soon, and similar bills are working their way through the Republican-dominated Idaho, Montana, Missouri, and Tennessee legislatures. University of Tennessee associate psychology professor Patrick R. Zranka warned in a Tennessean op-ed that his state's bill would erase LGBT people and issues from public school curricula completely, scrubbing them from human civilization. Tennessee, along with Arkansas, Mississippi, South Dakota, and Idaho, already ban trans athletes from competing in school sports. Some of those restrictions cover middle and high school through college. Republican lawmakers in Alabama, Arizona, Louisiana, Florida, West Virginia, and North Dakota have also jumped on that bandwagon. Civil and queer rights groups will certainly take all of these anti-trans laws to court. The state of Texas bottoms the barrel of offensive assaults on transgender young people by Republican lawmakers. The state Senate heard testimony this week on bills that would not only deny trans young people appropriate medical care, they would also criminalize supportive parents. More on that story later. If these bills become law, that, senators, is child abuse. Wherever you hear this way out. The National Collegiate Athletic Association has thrown down the gauntlet against states that enact laws banning transgender competitors in school sports. The governors of the NCAA issued a warning this week that those states risk the loss of hosting opportunities for championship tournaments. In a press release issued on April 11th, the country's Collegiate Sports Authority affirmed that it firmly and unequivocally supports the opportunity for transgender student-athletes to compete in college sports. This commitment is grounded in our values of inclusion and fair competition. The NCAA yanked seven championship events from North Carolina after it infamously passed its 2016 anti-trans bathroom bill and prevented cities from enacting ordinances banning anti-LGBTQ bias. So the association's threat may not be empty. This week's statement noted that, when determining where championships are held, 
NCAA policy directs that only locations where hosts can commit to providing an environment that is safe, healthy, and free of discrimination should be selected. The ACLU's Deputy Director for Transjustice, Chase Strangio, also warned Republican lawmakers and governors that, if you continue to pass these misguided laws, state taxpayers risk not only costly litigation, but the loss of revenue from these tournaments. Rodrigo Hang Lentinen of the National Center for Transgender Equality stressed that the harm is real and is felt very personally by transgender kids just trying to live their lives as who they really are. Ranking Australian homophobe Reverend Fred Nile announced his retirement from politics this week. The 86-year-old says he'll step down in November. Nile was first elected to the New South Wales Legislative Council in 1981 after founding the Christian Democratic Party. Its membership has dwindled considerably in recent years. Nile has been a notoriously outspoken anti-queer hatemonger for decades, railing against any advance in LGBTQ equality or civil rights protections. His chosen successor is another familiar name in right-wing politics, conservative religious commentator Lyle Shelton, ex-leader of the Australian Christian Lobby. Shelton said he was honored to fill Nile's shoes, calling his mentor a courageous and often lone voice for Christ's values. Reporter Link Jenkin noted in the Sydney Star Observer that any celebration of Nile's retirement should be tempered. Don't expect him to remain entirely silent in retirement. Jenkin cautioned that Lyle Shelton could possibly be worse given that he is considerably younger than Nile and has already been at the forefront of the fight against LGBTQI plus rights and visibility for years. Finally, President Joe Biden continued to keep his promise of a diverse administration this week with the nomination of Tucson, Arizona's gay police chief Chris Magnus to lead the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. Magnus began his law enforcement career in Lansing, Michigan, as a police dispatcher. He worked his way up to leading the departments in Fargo, North Dakota, and Richmond, California, before taking the helm in Tucson. He married Terrence Chung, the former chief of staff, to the mayor of Richmond in 2014. A photograph at a demonstration protesting the police shooting death of Ferguson, Missouri, African-American Michael Brown gained Magnus national prominence that year. The Richmond police chief appeared, in uniform, holding a Black Lives Matter sign. He took heat from the city's police union and other law enforcement officials around the country for that. That was also the year Richmond recorded just 11 homicides, its lowest number in decades. If the Senate confirms him, Magnus will not only be the first queer commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, he'll be leading the country's largest law enforcement agency. Its more than 60,000 agents guard both the southern and northern borders and the shorelines of some 320 ports of entry. The agency is also at the center of the country's intense immigration struggles. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending April 17th, 2021. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is recording remotely during the COVID-19 emergency. It's written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. 
And you can listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Paula Thomas. Stay healthy. And I'm John Dyer V. Stay safe. There hasn't been the recalcitrant pushback. There's not been the anxiety over it from the forces in the field. We'll remember how military campaigns are won later in the program. To honor Earth Day this week, we're sharing three rainbow minutes on the life and contributions of a woman who was quiet about being queer, but not silent about spring. The heroine of Earth Day, Rachel Carson, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Pennsylvania in 1907, Rachel Carson jump-started the environmentalist movement with her 1962 book, Silent Spring. Making science easy to understand to the layperson, she alerted citizens and governments to the dangers of pesticides on the food chain. In turn, the federal government took measures against water and air pollution, making Carson a true celebrity. Having already written two books about marine life, Carson had many fans. One was Dorothy Freeman, who lived close to her summer home in Southport Island, Maine. During the off-season, they exchanged intimate letters. Some were labeled the strong box, indicating that they should be burned so as not to reveal the romantic ambiance of their relationship. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Claudia C. Swanson. It makes me sad that some politicians use trans kids like me to get votes from people who hate me just because I exist. He has parents who provide him the support he needs. Taking him away from his family because we broke the law to provide that support have devastating and heartbreaking consequences. A brave trans kid and a mom who has one speak out. But first... U.S. military's new policy lifting the ban on transgender service members takes effect at the end of April. Ten years ago this month, the Pentagon was figuring out how to end its ban on non-trans queer people, a process that for some was going too well, as I reported in April of 2011. Wishing for a rougher road to don't ask, don't tell repeal implementation does not seem to be working out for Republicans in the U.S. House. At an April 7th hearing of the Armed Services Committee, Chair Buck McKeon of California complained about how the repeal legislation was passed by the Democratic-controlled House last year. McKeon questioned chief military officers on the process now underway, and their answers apparently took him down a peg or two. What is your current professional military judgment about the risk to military effectiveness? I had a session uh, with commanders last Friday. General Peter Chiarelli, U.S. Army Vice Chief of Staff. Uh, they have indicated uh, no issues so far in Tier 1 and Tier 2 training as they get ready to kick off uh, our Tier 3 training. And I'm looking specifically for Issues arise coming out of the Tier 2 and Tier 3 training. General James Amos, U.S. Marine Corps Commandant. And to be honest with you, Chairman, we've, we've not seen it. I mean, there are questions. There's questions about billeting from Marines. I mean, the kinds of questions you would expect. But there hasn't been the recalcitrant pushback. There's not been the 
the anxiety over it from the forces in the field. I will tell you that I asked specifically this morning for Major General Tulin. I said, John, what are you seeing in the young Marines that are out there? And he said, sir, quite honestly, they're focused on the enemy. And maybe they'll have questions when they return back to the United States of America. But right now they're very focused, and he doesn't think it's an issue. We are mitigating the risk in the way we are approaching this. General Norton Schwartz, U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff. And so I am more comfortable than I was on the 22nd of December. But we still have a ways to go, and it requires the constant attention of all of us to bring this home. I'm very comfortable. Admiral Gary Ruffhead, Chief of Naval Operations. I was comfortable in making the recommendation last December, and it's consistent with what I continue to see in the Navy today. I think one of the problems I had with, as I expressed in my opening statement, and a little of the difference that I had with Ranking Member Smith was kind of the way it was presented to us and given to us. We didn't hold a hearing at the full committee level. We were given a briefing. And the study was handed out to us just as the briefing started. So we really didn't have adequate time to read it, to ask, I felt, appropriate questions. And so my concern was more the procedure of how it was all laid out. But that's passed, and now we're moving forward. And I just want to make sure that we really are in tune with what's going on and that everybody has the opportunity to be involved in the process. Nevertheless, Congressman McKeon maintained that the Chief's testimonies did not necessarily dispel his fears that open service by lesbians and gays might somehow put the military's combat readiness at risk. However, with the Pentagon on board and with the implementation process going so smoothly, there's nothing more the GOP can do to prevent repeal. It's now expected that it will all be over by September. And it was indeed all over in September 2011, with the completion of the certification process in July, followed by 60 days of implementation, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was discharged to the dustbin of U.S. military history. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's Ambassador for Inclusion, and you are listening to This Way Out, the international radio show for all our sexually diverse communities. Rachel Carson's Letters, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. American biologist and conservationist Rachel Carson exchanged many letters that detail her extremely close relationship with Dorothy Freeman. Over the course of 12 years, starting in 1952, they shared their mutual love of nature and mutual love for each other through letters. Rachel and Dorothy burned some of the letters before Rachel's death. The book, Always Rachel, The Letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, 1952 to 1964, by Martha Freeman, Dorothy's granddaughter, includes letters that survived. Before Rachel died of breast cancer, she wrote to Dorothy saying, My heart aches for you. I was longing to put my arms around you and feel your head on my shoulder. If only I could go to you. But I know you understand my own health doesn't allow me to. To you, darling, my dearest, truest love, Rachel. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Pat Fishback. trans bills moving through U.S. state legislatures at the moment, proposals in the Texas House and Senate are the most cruel. They would strip the licenses of doctors who provide gender-affirming treatment to transgender children. They would also classify trans-supportive parents as child abusers, threatened with fines, imprisonment, and removal of the child. A child and a parent explained to the Texas Senate Committee on State Affairs what those laws would mean to them. Welcome. We, we, Chair calls Kai Shapley. Introduce yourself and give us your testimony. Go ahead. Hello. My name is Kai Shapley. Um, I love ballet, math, science, and geology. I spend my free time with my cats, chickens, FaceTiming my friends, and dreaming of when I will finally meet Dolly Parton. I do not like spending my free time asking adults to make good choices. I've been having to explain myself since I was three or four years old. Texas legislators have been attacking me since pre-K. I am in fourth grade now. When it comes to bills that target trans youth, I immediately feel angry. It's been very scary and overwhelming. It just... It makes me sad that some politicians use trans kids like me to get votes from people who hate me just because I exist. God made me. God loves me for who I am, and God does not make mistakes. You should be careful how you treat the least of these. Please, just listen to me. Hear me. Try to educate yourselves. Try to understand everybody. My mom has been giving everything she has to stand up for me. With these new things y'all are trying to do, we both are having to advocate for each other because you are now targeting a great mom and a great nurse. My mom needs her nursing license to take care of me and my siblings. Bullying is bad. Please stop. Don't make bad choices. It's never too late to turn it around. And I want to say thank you to those of you who are sticking up for kids like me. By the time I am in college, you will be celebrated in the history books. Thank you for your testimony, Kai. Thank you for being here. And uh, do we have any questions? Any questions for Kai? All right. Seriously, none of y'all want to know more about me? Uh, thanks. I'm not the bone in your side. Good afternoon. My name is Amber Briggle, and I am terrified to be here today. I'm terrified because I'm the parent of a transgender child, and I'm afraid that by speaking here today, my words will be used against me 
should SB 1646 or SB 1311 pass, and my sweet son, whom I love more than life itself, will be taken from me. But here I am. When my son was four years old, he asked me if scientists could turn him into a boy. I didn't understand then that he was trans. I only knew that he wasn't like most girls his age and that something inside him was hurting. Like many of you, I thought he was asking for surgery and I freaked out. But after doing research, I came to understand that gender affirmation surgery isn't done on minors and that there is a whole array of medical options available for transgender youth, including hormone blockers, which are 100% reversible, are not new, and are clinically proven to save the lives of the trans children taking them. Today, my son is 13 years old, the most popular boy in seventh grade, and loved by our friends, family, our church, and our community. This is possible because he has parents who affirm him and provide him the support he needs. Taking that support away from him, or worse, taking him away from his family because we broke the law to provide that support will have devastating and heartbreaking consequences. SB 1646 is a huge government overreach, a violation of a parent's rights to care for their children in the best way they see fit, and a death sentence to transgender children across the state who will be denied life-saving care. I'm almost done. Vote no to SB 1646 and SB 1311, because if these bills become law, that, senators, is child abuse. And I promise I will call every one of you every single time a transgender child dies from suicide to remind you that their lives could have been saved, but you chose not to. Thank you for your testimony. Any questions for the witness? Thank you for being here. Kai Shapley and Amber Briggle testified before the Texas Senate against proposed anti-trans laws. And now, one final minute about another supportive mother. Environmentalist Rachel Carson remembered, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. An eloquent writer and marine biologist, Rachel Carson became the mother of the environmental movement. In 1962, her book, Silent Spring, warned of the dangers of DDT and other chemical pesticides on the food chain, prompting the federal government to take measures against water and air pollution. On May 28, 1981, a Great American Series 17-cent U.S. postage stamp was issued, first in Carson's hometown of Springdale, Pennsylvania. It was almost square in shape, featuring a sketch of her head turned toward the viewer, printed in green ink on a white background. The Marshall Islands, Palau, and Zambia have also honored Carson with a stamp. Stamps were a precious commodity to Rachel Carson and her intimate friend, Dorothy Freeman, who exchanged hundreds of letters. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson.
Thanks for discovering This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from John Dyer V and Paula Thomas, produced by Brian DeShazer, and from Claudia C. Swanson, Pat Fishback, and Mary Gay Hutcherson, produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Graham Nash, Nomaly Brennett, and Amy Zimmerman performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Ivana Foundation, a bequest from Christopher David Trentum, and donors James Kennedy and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email to woradio at aol.com, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on Radio Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona, WESU, Middletown, Connecticut, KSBC, Claremont, California, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.